It's time for Real Ag Radio on Rural Radio Channel 147 on Sirius XM. Radio and realagriculture.com is your home for insight and analysis of the issues that are impacting your farm business. Let's get real and get connected with Real Ag Radio. Welcome to Real Ag Radio here on Rural Radio 147, Sirius XM. Sean Haney, your host here on this Wednesday midweek edition of the show. Thanks so much for making Real Ag Radio and Rural Radio 147 a big part of your workday. And of course, always, big shout out to everybody listening out there on the Real Ag Radio podcast. We're going to cover a lot of ground here today. We are stacked. No time for the top ag news stories today. Today, I apologize. We're loaded with conversations. We're going to talk about what's happening in the diesel market. Now, for some of you, you are right in the middle of your corn harvest. Others, you've packed the stuff away into the shed because the snow has started to fly. So we've got Patrick Tahan, who is uh, the petroleum analyst with Gas Buddy. He is going to be here today to talk about what he's seeing in the global complex when it comes to petroleum, the fundamentals, and uh, the impact that's having on diesel prices. They've kind of slid back a little bit since uh, the earlier part of September. We'll talk about the why, and is that the trend going forward, or are we potentially going to reverse and head back into the upper direction. We're also going to do a product spotlight today with Bushel Plus, who I'm excited to chat with. I know they're going to be at Agritechnica as well. So we're going to hear what uh, Bushel Plus has going on as they are really, really, they have grown so much. Very, very cool story. We're also going to talk today about the need for a national agri-food water action plan. Now, the need for that is being pushed by CAPI, and their managing director, Tyler McCann, will be here today to talk about a new report that they have published. And uh, we're also going to talk to Michael Harvey. He's the new executive director at CAFTA. Now, CAFTA is the organization that represents all the exportable commodities in Canada, and they are, they're trade-focused, absolutely, and they're worried about Bill C-282. That was like just passed through the house very, very easily. And uh, this is the one that would limit supply management from really being on the table when it comes to future trade negotiations. CAFTA is very worried about this, CAFTA and its members. So we'll talk about the why of that, and we're also going to talk about a few other trade issues too, like the CPTPP and the UK uh, potentially becoming a part of the agreement and some of the pushback that Canada has around that. If you have any feedback on today's show, we'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email, shaney at realagriculture.com. If you want to make fun of me in my pick of the D-backs in the World Series, that's probably the place to do it. They're down 3-1. Not looking very good. Anyway, you can also find us across all the different social media platforms, YouTube, X, uh, Instagram. We've got uh, TikTok and and the like. Uh, We are Real Agriculture on all of those. You can also uh, maybe call the Real Ag Feedback Line. The number is 855-776-6147. Man, how, last, speaking of the D-backs, in the World Series, how would you feel you drop $1,000 US on a ticket and it, they, all of a sudden it's like 10 nothing in the second? You're like, oh. I, in, the, in terms of the game lottery... We lost. Anyway, finished up 11-7. A lot closer than it... Uh, it wasn't that close throughout the game, but hopefully the D-backs... I picked the D-backs, so hopefully they come back. <laughs> we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we've got uh, Patrick DeHaan of Gas Buddy right after this. 
What's next for your fields? At Pioneer, delivering industry-leading genetics drives everything we do. From the scientists in the lab to our local teams with boots on the ground, we are determined to get there first. Developing top-performing products, proven in more growing conditions than ever before. Pioneer. What's next happens here. Visit pioneer.com slash Canada to learn more. Peter Johnson at WheatPeatRealAgriculture.com. I'm the host of The Word, and I love doing The Word. I love the questions. I love the challenges. I love having to apply agronomics to all over the globe and areas outside of my normal jurisdiction. Also, I love the feedback the most where growers challenge me, tell me about their plot results, help me to learn. The Word, absolutely the best part of my day. If you're involved in the agriculture industry, it's important to stay informed on all the latest issues affecting your business. At realagriculture.com, we offer fast, reliable news, information, and insights to help you keep on top of all of the latest in Canadian agriculture. Visit realagriculture.com and sign up for our free daily newsletter covering everything from news, agronomy, animal agriculture, and much more. Visit realagriculture.com forward slash subscribe today. As we head into the the winter months of uh, 2023, as the calendar flips to 24, we're seeing a lot happening in the energy markets. Now, there's a lot happening in the geo- geopolitical space, of course, that does have an impact. But all this works its way back to the farm gate from a cost perspective on a number of different fronts. Joined right now by Patrick DeHaan. He is head of petroleum analysis with Gas Buddy. Patrick, great to have you back. Good to be with you again. A lot of attention, of course, from the farming community in Canada and the U.S. when it comes to diesel prices. Um, Now, I guess give us your synopsis, the overall arching. What's actually happening here? We have a lot of focus on the OPEC Plus uh, cuts that happened earlier in the spring taking effect. We saw a big price rise through the summer. Things have kind of cooled off a little bit, uh, sort of relatively. Uh, What's happening? Yeah, things have cooled off a bit. Uh, Diesel prices have actually inched down a little bit from where we were back in uh, mid-September when the average price for diesel across Canada uh, hit about $1.88 a litre. We've fallen a little bit, not a whole lot, to $1.81 a litre, but really any decrease in the fall is something to get excited about because this is not usually the time of year that we see diesel prices inching down. In fact, if we rewind to last year, we were seeing diesel prices explode, especially in eastern Canada, A lot of that had to do with the fact that imports were under a lot of pressure on the eastern Canadian coast because of Europe's need to heat itself uh, last winter. Uh, Going into winter, natural gas inventories were extremely tight. Europe was buying a lot of diesel because it was cutting off Russia. In addition, last year saw Chinese coal demand surge. And China, to supplement coal, was buying all sorts of distillate, diesel and heating oil, And so that caused the price of diesel last year to be much higher. So we're getting a bit of a break this year. Overall, the price of oil has seen some pressure, which has certainly bucked some uh, Americans and Canadians alike, thinking that oil prices and diesel prices could go up because of the situation in the Middle East. But we're getting a little bit of relief as the broader economy slows down. Inflation has still been challenging, and that has continued to induce higher inflation or, excuse me, higher interest rates as inflation remains rather high, and that's kept some downward pressure on the price of diesel. Yeah, l- last year, Europeans were rewarded by Mother Nature, more warmer than normal winter, 
Um, obviously, winter is upon us. Uh, is, is there still big challenges in that regard in, in front of us and, and challenges for diesel supplies if, uh, say, we're to have a colder than usual winter? Yeah. Uh, Mother Nature is always a big wild card when it comes to the price of diesel, simply because so many areas of northeastern United States and into Canada can use heating oil as well to heat your home. So a big cold spell could certainly spell challenges this year. Diesel and heating oil inventories are still rather tight in the United States. Now, we don't get as great of a view from Canadian data, uh, but uh, U.S. inventories remain rather tight, and that's going to set the tone here. There still could be a big upswing in the price of diesel if Mother Nature doesn't cooperate and throws us some very cold weather. That could mean a, a jump in the price of diesel as we head into the winter months. So that's certainly something to keep an eye on. I, I mentioned OPEC Plus and some of the production cuts earlier this year. What is OPEC Plus up to going forward? What's your, I, I guess, your uh, your crystal ball tell you? Well, OPEC Plus has put a lot of pressure on oil prices. The Saudis really kicked it off this summer after oil prices were as low as 65 and $70 a barrel. OPEC Plus, really Russia, the part of the plus there, uh, got together with Saudi Arabia. It was really Saudi Arabia that kicked things off by cutting production voluntarily and on its own this summer. And they've extended those cuts now through the end of the year. That's when OPEC's cuts will pick up into 2024. That's been the wild card, something to watch moving forward. Will the Saudis extend those production cuts into the new year or will they allow them to lapse? Well, I think right now the pressure is going to be on the Saudis to continue those cuts simply because those cuts have now materialized in the price of oil that's been above $80 a barrel for the last couple of months. And so I would look for OPEC to keep its uh, uh, supply situation rather tight, and that could have an impact on diesel prices moving forward. But if we see any movement on the global economy, that certainly could cause some uh, additional pain points as well, especially if central banks start to ease the financial situation by lowering interest rates, something that they've hinted that they could do at some point in 2024. And then the thought there is, just for the audience, stronger economy, more demand, <laughs> pressure on, or not pressure on prices, but uh, strength in prices. Yeah, that's exactly it. If we start to see a, a hint at even interest rates coming down, that would likely bolster the stock market, get the market going on the fact that growth could return. And that growth would likely mean a growth in diesel and dissolute consumption, as well as jet fuel and gasoline. A stronger economy and one that's growing more is going to consume more petroleum, and that's the thinking. You know, when you drive around the countryside, you, you tend to see pockets regionally where it's like, man, gas is expensive here. Uh, you know, I, I've told a story on the radio where I was uh, in the desert between Palm Springs and Phoenix, and I paid six fifty a gallon for gasoline, uh, but I wasn't I was going to pay it because I wasn't going to be stranded somewhere in the desert at a, at a fuel yeah. of gas. Is is there a lot of regional differences when it comes to, to diesel prices across the U.S.? Uh, you know, there certainly can be. Uh, some areas of the Midwest right now, the bottom 10% of stations in the U.S. are below the $4 a gallon mark, and the top 10% are still above $6. So that's a pretty hefty, you know, $250 to $3 a gallon spread. There's still a spread in Canada as well, but you get into the regulation, the rules, the refining situation, the supply, the demand situation in each one of the U.S.'s regions. It's really broken down into five different regions, by the way, for the purposes of pricing. And every region can have different fundamentals or different balances. California generally sees the highest prices. Now, California has pushed renewable diesel and with it, soybean oil, which is much more expensive, 
And so diesel prices in California have remained very high. In fact, uh, the only state right now where diesel is averaging over $6 a gallon is California. And again, because of the push of renewable fuels, whereas other states like Texas are currently seeing average diesel prices below the $4 a gallon mark. So that's not a huge regional difference or that's not a huge geographical difference between California and Texas. But between those two states, a difference of almost $3 a gallon for diesel. Yeah, soybean growers and canola growers across Canada and the U.S. are being told that there's a big future here for renewable diesel. Uh, is what kind of from your from your I guess vantage point? Are you, are you is it having any impact on the market uh, from a supply standpoint at this point, and how that reflects to pricing? Well, I, I think so, but the the market is limited still a, a bit by the the difficulty in getting some of that renewable diesel to the market. Keep in mind that refineries need to. Uh, convert their facilities from producing traditional diesel to biodiesel. And so that process can be uh, time consuming. Uh, but a lot of those refineries in California have made that switch to producing biodiesel. And that's primarily why California, I would have estimate that at least half of what California is, is consuming in terms of diesel is now uh, biodiesel. And so where there have been government credits and mandates, uh, it's pushed uh, market share for biodiesel up significantly. Uh, but the situation varies from state to state. California has adopted it. Refineries in California have been incentivized to uh, shift their refineries to renewable diesel. We're seeing that as well. Uh, Irving Oil, uh, or excuse me, not Irving Oil, but the uh, refinery come by chance was bought by a company for the process of converting that from a traditional refinery to producing more biofuels. And so it is picking up uh, steam. The biodiesel movement is picking up steam in Canada as well. But Again, there are some challenges with making those conversions. They are expensive. Uh, and getting that to inland Canada could be challenging as well. That That is those biofuel products. Now, as we look ahead to 2024, farmers, ranchers, big consumers of diesel, they're, they're burning diesel every day on the farmer ranch. What are some of the indicators, the things that they should be watching to give them maybe some of those signals on whether or not they'll pre-buy or, or things like that? I certainly would be watching Mother Nature, any extended uh, temperatures. Uh, I think much of North America is looking for a slight El Nino, which could keep some communities warmer and others colder. So watching those fluctuations, watching those uh, long-term uh, climate uh, predictions for how cold it's going to be could be a big hint into what diesel is going to do. We're also coming out of refinery turnaround season, so there is more capacity to produce more diesel as refineries finish up their fall maintenance. Uh, but I'd be also watching the global picture uh, in terms of what's happening in the Middle East. Now, we haven't seen oil prices react yet, uh, but there have been uh, some banging of the drums by countries like Iran, who is a major oil producer. So I'd keep an eye on what's happening in the Middle East. And then back to the drawing board, economics, good old economics. What central banks are doing? Are they going to push the economy back into growth? Or are they going to constrain growth to keep inflation in check. I think those are the biggest indicators, the economy, the Middle East, and Mother Nature. Patrick, thanks a lot for joining us here. Really appreciate it. Keep up the great work at Gas Buddy. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me, Sean. Pay attention to those indicators, those signals. Stay on top of this one. It seems like we've had a little bit of relief, as Patrick has talked about, but uh, price is still relatively high. And uh, the, the course can, of course, change, especially when we're dealing with some of the geopolitical underpinnings of, of some of these fundamentals. When we come back on Real Ag Radio, we're going to hear from Bushel Plus in a product spotlight. And then we're still going to talk to Tyler McCann of Cappy, as well as we're going to hear from Michael Harvey of CAFTA. You're listening to Real Ag Radio, World Radio 147. 
Whether you're a rookie soybean grower or a seasoned vet, the Soybean School on RealAgriculture.com has exactly what you need to stay in the game. The latest research and the best agronomic advice from industry experts, along with local and global market coverage on demand anywhere, anytime. Make this growing season your best growing season with the Soybean School on RealAgriculture.com. As you look ahead to the next growing season, there's a lot to consider when it comes to your crop. You need every possible advantage available to you. The Pulse School on RealAgriculture.com has everything you need to make the best choice for you and your farm. On-demand videos with leading industry experts available anywhere, anytime. Go into the season confident and ready with The Pulse School on RealAgriculture.com. I get to spend every day talking to farmers in the ag industry through RealAgriculture.com and Real Ag Radio. But nothing is more fun than speaking to an audience live and in person. If you're planning an ag event, book a Real Agriculture speaker to make it a successful and memorable experience. Email shaney at realagriculture.com and you can book myself or any other Real Ag personality to speak at your event. Bring your audience all the fun, insight, and energy of Real Agriculture. Welcome back to Real Ag Radio. It's now time for a product spotlight with Bushel Plus. Our guest is the CEO and founder. It is Marcel Kringer. Marcel, great to have you on the show here. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hello. Hey, well, Bushel Plus has really taken off. Your, your company has had tremendous growth, a, a lot of attention when it comes to, especially this time of the year, at harvest. So B- Bushel Plus started with the Smart Pan system. But it expanded the offer to the mini combine and now mad concaves through your acquisition of a company in 2022. So let's talk here about why it was important for you to make this shift to offer a full suite of harvest products. Yeah, hey, appreciate the feedback. That's definitely due to a, a great team around me here. So, yeah, the company has been growing quite quite rapidly, and you know, it was kind of an organic growth where um, there was a demand for the value we were able to bring. And and with that, it kind of opened up more doors for products that would bring more value to the farm because everything around that, what we do here is around saving the farmer time and money and making their lives easier and more safe. And it just kind of opened up the door uh, for some of the efficiency where we, we came across the mini combine, uh, which was a nice product for that. And, um, you know, and the smart pan system also identified some of those opportunities over the years where a lot of people did testing and realized, hey, you know what, there is other type of concaves that we probably should be using. And this works better and it doesn't work as well and always different conditions. So it kind of opened up the door to uh, the transition of uh, acquiring mad concaves because, um, you know, a lot, a lot of respect for the founders there, and and they were kind of in a spot where they were, you know, in their mid sixties, ready to kind of slow down a bit, and we were ready to gear up. And since that was a local company, it all kind of played into the goal of harvest optimization because that's really what Bushel Plus is. We are the harvest optimization company, and you know, our mission is to add value and profit to every harvest. That's our that's our goal. So. 
Yeah, awesome. So B- Bushel Plus sells products, and uh, I can't believe this. I, I found out 33 countries around the world, but but you're based in Manitoba, so a, a great Canadian success story. How does that international business come back to benefit your local community there in Manitoba? That That is a great question. Yeah, thank you. It, it, uh, it all started locally in, in the basement here, so now... There's probably a couple different uh, sides to this, the business side and the people side. You know, on, on one hand, there's a lot of knowledge and learnings that are actually coming back from our team because, you know, we learn so many different things in other countries of how they harvest crops and how they do certain things and tips and tricks around harvest. Um, you know, one of the examples is when I moved to Canada from Europe, you know, we were doing straight cut in Europe for forever. It was just normal over there because different varieties, different conditions. Where over here, straight cut was new. So that was something I was able to implement here and, and bring knowledge over. So that's just one of the, one small example of how that was helped, how this was helping locally, how to transfer kind of that knowledge, you know, or different combine setups for that. Or the tools, right? Like the mini combine, for example, is for about a decade already known in Europe and kind of was refined over there. And a lot of farmers have it over there, but it was not over here. So we brought that tool, proven tool from Europe to North America and make it, you know, over here as the market entry to help, again, farmers saving time and money. Um, So, you know, it helps with tools and knowledge, but then on the people side, and on, you know, the, the community side, Bushel Plus is a, is a real company. You know, it, it, it was me, myself, and I in a hobby. And now we have almost 30 employees. Uh, you know, they all work here. They, they got to feed their families. And that responsibility is on, on my shoulders. You know, that, that, is a, that is a responsibility I take very seriously. And, and those are 30 new jobs that were created. So, you know, all these people work in a community um, they, they, they have their families at home, like I said, but we also have suppliers, you know, we have suppliers in the U S and Canada, we have contractors. So there's a lot of people that are actually employed now producing local products that are, you know, made in North America. A lot of stuff is made in Brandon, Manitoba here. Cool. Um, cool. So a lot of that we do research, you know, ACC and Brandon, Olds College, PAMI, Emily, you name it, you know, we support a lot of local events, specifically around STARS. Um, and now we're the first year, I'm very excited about this, we have a scholarship uh, happening at ACC in Brandon. Um, you know, and that is some of those things where, you know, we have summer students. This year we had a summer student that came out of a complete different area and now is considering a Korean egg because he op- it opened up his eyes to what's all happening in agriculture. So there is... A lot of things happening here, but everything is really exciting. Well, I know as the founder of Real Agriculture, one of the very common questions I get all the time is, hey, what's next? What's Real Ag doing next? So I'm sure you get the same <laughs> thing. So I'll push it back to you. What, what's what's next for Bushel Plus? Yeah, that's good. The joke around here is that Marcel's brain never stops. So, you know, we actually are at Agritechnica for the first time here in November in Germany. So one of the largest trade shows in the world that happens every two years and you know, for me, as walking the show as a little kid, now actually exhibiting there is super exciting. So that opens up a big market. Marcel, if somebody wants more information about Bushel Plus, what's the best way to uh, find out more? 
Yeah, three good things. There's a website, bushelplus.com. You can check us out on all the social media channels under at bushelplus. And you can walk into your local dealership uh, or your equipment dealer and ask for Bushel Plus products because a lot of the dealers out there, especially in Canada, are signed up. Awesome. Marcel, thanks so much for joining us here today on Real Life Radio for this product spotlight. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. Infuse some energy into your next corporate event, customer meeting, or conference with Real Ag Radio, Canada's national agriculture radio show. Create a unique experience at your next event with host Sean Haney, broadcasting Real Ag Radio live on Sirius XM, featuring exciting guests, captivating interviews, and the latest news from the agriculture community. Contact advertising at realagriculture.com or call 587-787-1795 to book your on-location with Real Ag Radio today. Before you get back in the field this year, spend some time with the Corn School on realagriculture.com. Get all the information you need on hybrid selection, planting depth, crop inputs, and more from a wide range of industry experts. A massive library of video content is available on demand when you need it most. Spend your time outside of the field, inside the classroom, with the Corn School on realagriculture.com. Really looking forward to heading out next week to Agritechnica at the back end of the week. And we're going to be in Hanover, Germany. Real agriculture will definitely be on the ground. Our coverage is brought to you by Optimum Gly and Corteva AgriScience. So a uh, big thanks to Corteva for being the sponsor of our coverage of Agritechnica. And you can find all that coverage by going to realagriculture.com or, of course, on our Real Agriculture YouTube channel. Water. Important resource. Uh, some would uh, like less of it coming from the sky. So <laughs> some areas would definitely like more of it. Uh, having a national water strategy, something being very encouraged from the perspective of Cappy. Joining us here right now on a new report they released last week is Tyler McCann. He's managing director at Cappy. Tyler, good to chat with you. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Okay, so the report, a national agri-food water action plan. Uh, what, I guess off the top, what's the gap here? Do we not have one already? No, we don't. And and I think the gap is that water is an increasingly critical resource that we take for granted in Canada. And so we think that we need to think differently about water. We need to act differently about water. We made a point of not calling for a national water strategy. We have a lot of strategies out there, Sean. What we need is action. And so that's why... Our recommendation is that we need governments, the industry to come together and come up with an action plan and move forward on it. Yeah. Well, the Canadian way would be to have a committee and then have that committee consult and then have a, here's what we heard document and then wonder now, what do we do? So uh, you have some key takeaways in the report. And, and, and one of the things, and I think this is consistent across a number of different topics Canada has a fragmented and siloed model for water management. Um, now, is, is this where the provinces get involved? Or I guess, whose jurisdiction are we talking about here? So the short answer is, it depends. The long answer is, uh, the provinces, federal government, municipalities all play a role. We've got water that crosses international boundaries. So the United States gets engaged uh, at times. We've got farmers, processors. Uh, indigenous groups that all have a really important role to play. And so 
as much as we joke earlier about the you know the Canadian approaches, let's create a committee. We do actually need people to work together. You know, there are um, these clear distinctions where the province will be out front around water management within their boundaries, but you know, again, if you look at, at the prairies in particular, these these uh, issues, water flows from from the west to the east across the prairies. A, a lot of the time, we need provinces to be working together. We can need to learn from what everyone's doing, and we need to be a lot more thoughtful about how we're on one hand we're conserving water, which will need to be conserved and and be managed more sustainably, but on the other hand, about how we're leveraging it so that we can take better advantage of the asset that that Canada has. We've also got some challenges where there's international jurisdiction, right? I, I think of uh, a, a lake not too far from me, the Kukanusa, where the water fills from from the U.S. side, um, and 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 that that may fit a little bit, you know, if we if we don't have good relations with our, our neighbor to the south on on matters like this, it it there could be some real challenges. How does that factor into some of the details of the report? Well, so so it definitely does, and and I think it it matters on a on a couple of counts. I mean, the United States, in a lot of ways, is is the example of what we don't want to do in Canada. If you look at the southern U.S. and you look at their inability to effectively manage their resources, has having a huge impact on on ag. I mean, if you look at um, uh, dairy crops, fruit and vegetables, uh, agriculture productions being being upended there. But if you also look at, you know, the the role that water was a significant issue in the Canada, U.S., uh, Mexico uh, free trade negotiations, the, the potential for the U.S. to be potentially redirecting water away from Canada, it could have a significant impact as well. Again, if they're looking at what do they do to make up for their own lack of water uh, domestically, that has that has a significant potential. And so we need to have a much better understanding of how those dynamics are are playing out and we need to be a lot more thoughtful. Again, I think, I think some of that goes back to in the past, we've taken water for granted. We haven't, I think, you know, some people have talked about the threat of bulk water exports and a lot of us would just shrug our shoulders and say, that's not going to happen. But if you understand actually what's happening in the United States, there's, there may be more of a risk of that than a lot of us would like to admit. Do you have any idea from a research perspective? Like, uh, I, I know there's different universities that have, you know, I'll just call them water institutes or there, you know, there's, there's a chair in, in, in water research. How is, how are we doing understanding the situation from a research perspective? Yeah, I think that there are some, some real uh, good examples of the University of Saskatchewan's got a global institute on, on water security doing a lot of really important work. But there's a lot that we don't know. And a lot of the things that we used to think that we knew are changing because of the impact on climate change and extreme weather. So one of our recommendations is that governments need to start to invest more. We need a, a better long-term plan around water research, but but we need to just to start by making some more investments. So we say as a starting point, we need to invest $18 million in mission-driven research. What that means is Rather than doing what the government likes to do today and, and take a broad research program and say we want to have everybody do a little bit of water research, we should have a targeted call focused just around water, water management, and really direct uh, our focus and intention. We tend not to do that in agriculture in Canada. We tend to sprinkle money all over the place and results aren't very good. We need to think differently about how we invest in R&D in the space. So some Canadians... And members of the audience have maybe heard of the Canada Water Agency. What what role do they play? 
So we're still waiting to hear exactly what that's going to be. So so the Canada Water Agency is something that's still being developed, still being rolled out by the federal government. We know it's going to be in Winnipeg, but we're waiting in, in more details around what its mandate should be. The report clearly points to the fact that that agency needs should be a facilitator and enabler should be a place that brings uh, provinces, farmers, other stakeholder groups together to, to th- again, to think more more thoughtfully about water management, water resources, can help fund some of this this research. It should not be a regulator. I think that there's a lot of concern that you're going to see the federal government go back to some of the things that it did in the past that alienated a lot of uh, important stakeholders, especially on, on the prairies. But, but this is, should be about uh, helping to find new solutions and helping to do things differently, not about carrying the heavy hammer across across the prairies. You, you mentioned that the greatest impact will be achieved when governments work together. <laughs> Call me cynical, but that seems like a really, really high request. <laughs> yeah, it, it 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 shouldn't it shouldn't be and and you know it's it's you know these simple things we just got to put our differences uh aside and and figure out how we we do things together. You know what one of the simple things is, you know, across the country people use different measures to measure water. You know, so we don't have a a, a consistent set of metrics. Surely to God, Sean, we can figure out a way to to use one consistent set of of measurements across the country. Okay. Um so any other call to actions here from from your perspective that should be happening that that really will have a positive impact on the agriculture yeah. food industry? Yeah, I think it's I think an, an important piece is we need to think differently about infrastructure. You know, I think we think a lot about irrigation and drainage. Actually probably what we need is is more flexible infrastructure that recognizes you know, there's going to be times of the year when we're dealing with a flood and times of the year we're dealing with a drought. And we need to be able to think differently about both of those dynamics. But but first and foremost, our call to action is people need to think more about water. They need to think more about water and agriculture and food. And they need to think about, again, how do we conserve it? But also, how do we leverage it? But no different than trying to build a pipeline in this country. How the heck would you ever build a dam? Yeah, well, we're going to wait and see what happens in Saskatchewan as they finally try and and complete a project that was started 60 years ago, 70 years ago to 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 grow their irrigation infrastructure. Hopefully, uh, some of the changes, the federal court decisions, make it a little bit easier for Saskatchewan to move ahead with that. You you mentioned a couple times Canada takes water, Canadians take water for granted. What is that rooted in? Is it because we just think we have? a lot of it like is it the it's the abundance of it what, what's creating that sort of underlying feeling about water I, so i think it is that we do have a lot of it i think when people think about water they think about a, a country full of of lakes and in rivers I, I often we don't think about the groundwater that's there the reality is that around the world about 70 percent of our of freshwater withdrawals go to agriculture but in canada it's only 12 percent. we actually don't use that much water for agriculture and food but in Part that tells me that we're not leveraging the resource the way that that we should, um, but we have to understand that that again that that the way things used to be with water are changing. Uh, we know that they're going to change more often, and and so these ideas this this days in the past that again we didn't need to worry about irrigation because there's going to be enough rainfall. You know we don't need to spend the money. Again, I think we've seen the last couple of years that that we cannot should not be thinking that that way anymore. Is there, you, you mentioned the U.S. is not the model. Um, you know, I've, making U.S. media appearances, there's always lots of talk about waters of the United States, and, you know, fighting over that. Um, is there is there a country out there that 
is taking a leadership position and is something in a country that we should maybe spend more time trying to emulate that has some of the same geographical, uh, I, I guess, constraints or context for us? Yeah. So one of the interesting things, you know, leadership is often driven out of a crisis. So if you look at countries that are doing well on water R&D and innovation, Israel is one of the best in the world. They're spending a lot, but that's because they don't have it. I think if you look at, at water management, Australia is a bit of an interesting case again, but, but it's become a conflict point as they have to fight between agriculture users and municipal, municipal users. And I think one of the, the good news or one of the opportunities for Canada is that we can develop a, a made in Canada solution, hopefully before the crisis actually hits us so that we're not stuck in the same situation as Australia or the U.S. who are trying to struggle through how do you manage a situation where you don't have enough water anymore? Is is the the scope of the stakeholders when we talk about water? We're 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 basically talking about everybody, and so trying to to kind of bring this into here's a strategy, and not just a strategy, but like you said, like here's an action plan that can be implemented. That there, there's big barriers here, and it's you know when we get to like a consult, for example. There is any everything and anything uh, contributing to that, and everybody has a, a point of view, and they are not in the same ballpark. It, that has to be one of the barriers here. It, it certainly is, and and again, we're trying to put a little bit of a box around it by referring to agri-food water. Again, this agriculture ministers don't unfortunately have all of the power that that sometimes we would like them to have. They're going to need to work with their environment colleagues. They're going to need to work with their natural resources colleagues. You know, this is uh, going to be a, t- a team effort, but at a minimum, we should have a better understanding of how much water is agriculture using? How much water does it need? What are the investments that are needed? Those are issues that agriculture itself and, and the community of stakeholders more closely connected to agriculture can, can figure out on its own. And how do we get Mother Nature to cooperate more often? She can play a big part in all this. Yeah, and how? but but we know that she's not going to cooperate. We're living yeah. through that today. So how do we better plan, adapt, and mitigate to the the challenges that she's throwing at us. Uh, Tyler, if somebody wants access to the National Agri-Food Water Action Plan report that uh, CAPI has published, where do they find it? Yeah, they should go to our website, www.capi-icpa.ca. We've got a webinar coming up next week. They can find the details on that on our website as well. Awesome stuff. Tyler, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Sean. When we come back on Real Ag Radio, we're going to talk all about trade. Michael Harvey is executive director at CAFTA, very concerned about some of the trade implications for C-282 if it becomes legislation. And right now, everyone's uh, all eyes on the Senate. Uh, We'll talk about it and why maybe you need to be concerned or pushing for it, depending on what end of the spectrum you're on, on this one right after this. Canola is more than just a pretty face in the prairie landscape. It's a big business, both here and around the world, that requires you to be informed and up-to-date on everything it takes to grow a successful crop. The Canola School on realagriculture.com has an expert library of video resources covering markets, agronomy, and more to help you grow a healthy and profitable canola crop. Visit canolaschool.com today. Brought to you by BASF Canada and Invigor Hybrid Canola. Some farmers say they don't have time. Some farmers say fitness is not for them. Some farmers say, I don't have time to eat right. It's time to start making changes today. 
Join me, Sean Haney, and Gary Chambers as we cover all things fitness. That's the Fit Farmer Podcast, available on realagriculture.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's talk trade. And um, uh, a new face to the industry of agriculture, a very welcome face. It is Michael Harvey. He is Executive Director of CAFTA. Michael, great to have you on the show. Thanks for the invitation, Sean. Okay, a lot of trade issues. Of course, Canada is very heavily export-focused in a number of different commodities. And of course, CAFTA represents those exportable commodities. I I want to start off by talking about Bill C-282. And uh, this is something that CAFTA has pushed hard back against, being there being uh, potential serious unattended consequences and direct consequences for that matter, if this legislation does actually become a real thing. Uh, wh- where is 282 in the legislative process, first off? Sure, Sean. Uh, right now, 282 is before the Senate. So senators are just starting to look at it. It's at a procedural stage called second reading. It has not yet been studied in committee. Okay. Uh, so why is CAFTA and your members so pushing back so hard on 282? Well, I mean, as you said, Canada is a trading nation in the ag sector in particular, but in lots of different sectors of the economy. And C282, what it does is shoot ourselves in the foot in future trade negotiations. How does it do it? C282 basically says that in trade negotiations, Canadian trade negotiators cannot uh, touch the sectors that are managed through the supply management system. Cannot touch it. Um, we think that that handcuffs our, our, uh, our trade negotiators. It ties their hands just way too tightly. Um, our trade negotiators over the years have always protected those sectors. We'll continue to protect those sectors, but there's just no need to tie their hands the way that uh, this bill is looking at doing it. From from the aspect of the the why of of two eighty two, uh, we we know in CPTPP, we know in CETA, we know in the USMCA, market access was was negoti- was given up uh, to, in order to, you know as a component of getting those deals across the line. Um, are there major trade deals in front of us that you're concerned we won't be able to get across the line if two eighty two is in place? Yeah, I'd say the the most important thing is trade deals actually are never in the past. They're often in the future, even if they've been passed. And the most important one is CUSMA, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement. Um, In the case of CUSMA, there's a clause in the agreement that says that in 2026, the the three countries are going to review it, see how it's working. That means that the countries can start renegotiating things and I, I guess I think all of your your listeners know that uh, there's going to be a change in the U.S. Uh, system uh, next year. Well, it could be a Biden administration again. It could be a Trump administration again. It could be somebody else. Um, it's the same thing for Mexico, where there's going to be elections next year. So there's a lot of uncertainty about how the United States is going to look at this review. It could be very, very difficult, and we think that C-282 is going to be tying the hands of our negotiators in, in, in our most important trade agreement. Do you feel, or is the worry, just so we understand the concern here, is the worry that, you know, I think about the NAFTA renegotiation as an example. I had to put an example to sort of line this out. <clears throat> you know, most of the exportable commodities, beef, pork, 
were just trying to hold the same line. They weren't looking for more. They were basically just trying to hold the line. Please keep as is. It is working. And that was kind of the message from the Canadian perspective and the U.S. perspective. Does that become more difficult in the future, it, 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 applying that kind of example, if market access can never be given up because of this legislation's in place? You know, when you go into a trade negotiation, you always go in with a strategy, you go in with a negotiating position, and, and often it's better for a lot of that negotiating position to take place behind closed doors. We think it's problematic when things get politicized too much, get legislated too much. And what C-282 does is legislate things to the point where, you, where you're going to scare our trade negotiators off of even discussing certain things. I'd also say if you're looking at it from the perspective of the people that they'll be negotiating with, say the negotiators from the United States, you're putting a big target on Canada's system saying, go after me here because this is our weak point. We think that all of all, everything C-282 is about is making things more complicated, which will make for, for worse results um, in negotiations for Canada. How firm, if passed and does become legislation, how firm is it? Because I, I've had a couple of people that have said to me, like, uh, whatever, 282 happens, no big deal. You can, you can find a way around it if needed. Um, is, do you at all share that, that belief? Well, I, I mean, obviously, legislation can be uh, revoked, right? You can go back to parliament and change again. It's more difficult to lift legislation than it is to put new legislation in place. Um, and if it weren't important, people wouldn't be pushing to get it done, right? People are pushing for this legislation because it protects their sector. That's fine. I mean, everybody's there to protect their sector. But what we would say is that in a diverse country like Canada, where we've got a diversified economy, we shouldn't be drafting our legislation around just one sector. What, what I have found strange about all this is in the sense that there was market access given up to get those other deals across the line, yet compensation was provided to those industries to make them whole. Um, and then we've still got trade challenges. With, you know, If you want to use the USMCA or Kuzma as the example, the other side is saying that the market access was never actually... We never actually got the market access we were promised yet there was still compensation for that market. It's, it's, it's a very, very complicated uh, situation. The, the, no matter if we have 282 or we don't, the, the controversy or the trade fights around, say, dairy, for example, it, it's probably not going away. What, what we would say at CAFTA is that 282 complicates things. Uh, it complicates things by legislating where all you really need to do is talk to your trade negotiators in terms of their instructions. Um, and by complicating things, we're probably going to come up with a worse situation for Canada. Now, Michael, you joined CAFTA here in, in earlier part of 2023. You've mentioned this 2026 review of Kuzma or USMCA, depending on which country you're, uh, the, the viewer is, is, is watching this or listening to this from. Um, I, I guess how in depth, what, what, what are you, when you're talking to lawmakers, you're talking to trade people or industry reps on both sides of the border, is, is there a lot of sort of, is there worry about this in terms of, like, is this going to be the big drawn out affair that it was in the last renegotiation? Or is this more of like a, like a sort of a rubber stamp? What, what are your thoughts? Well, it could be either. 
frankly, but I'd say the prudent thing for Canada's uh, government to consider is that it, there's a big risk there. And there's a big risk that everything gets reopened. Um, if you look, the Biden administration has not been pushing international trade. It's uh, just been very, it's had very little interest in the World Trade Organization and trade negotiations. It's working on issues that aren't really about tariff barriers. Um, and that's the administration. Uh, former President Trump already gave one interview where he said that if he gets elected again, he's going to put a 10% tariff on every product of the whole world that's going into the United States, which would basically tear up the international trading system. In that context, um, we think that uh, our, our authorities need to start preparing for things some and not do things that shoot ourselves in the foot, like adopting C-282. Can you give us a bit of an update on uh, where things are with the CPTPP and the UK joining? This is something that the beef and pork industry, your members uh, as well, being very much against and having big time concerns about. What, what's the update on, on the process of that, uh, bringing them in? Yes, so our uh, beef and pork producers have expressed a lot of concern. You've probably spoken to them. Um, we share that concern at CAFTA. I, I guess the, the way we see it is that the UK system has gone way too far in the direction of politicizing decisions on food safety instead of making science-based decisions on food safety. That's highly problematic, and that's why we think that the CPTPP accession uh, is by no means automatic. And we think that the current bilateral negotiations that are taking place between Canada and the UK are the place where we can solve this problem by coming to agreement with the, with the UK on science-based decision-making and food safety issues. Michael, do you, do you have a position or a thought? You, you spent a career in the, in the trade arena um, in, in a lot of different places around the world. Do, do you have a thought on carbon border adjustments and, and how that's, that impacts agriculture and the members of CAFTA? I guess my I've got a broad thought, which is yep. that international trade uh, discussions are, are moving away from the times when it was all about reducing tariff barriers and have moved into other areas like non-tariff barriers, like the one I was just the ones I was just talking about with the UK. But it's also moving into the world of sustainability, what people call ESG, environmental, social and government governance issues issues that are more values-based. Um, so the world, I mean, the major countries involved in the world trading system are trying to address very legitimate challenges around the environment, around social issues. And it's going to be very difficult to address those challenges without creating trade barriers that cause problems of their own, that make the world poorer, that make the world uh, less stable, that fail to reach really the environmental goals we're looking at. If what environmental decisions are, are trade barriers just hidden, uh, colored as uh, as environmental decisions, then the world's going to be moving backwards. So our, our members are going to be pushing to protect the world trading system and for uh, decisions that are more objective and less politicized. Do we, do we have adequate resources in the area of enforcement? I, I know pre, you know, uh, we, we had talked to the, the prior executive director about, you know, some have deemed it like a, tra- a need for a trade czar in, 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 in Canada. We do development, we do promotion of trade, 
But enforcement of trade deals is something that maybe we need more resources on. This is something the Canadian government has said, uh, no, thank you. Uh, what's CAFTA's position on that at this point? Well, I think we always try to support the development of uh, solid trade diplomacy skills in the, in the Canadian system. I think we've got very solid people. Um, we've seen some more resources go recently into the Indo-Pacific region, in particular, as part of the Indo-Pacific strategy. There's a very interesting office called the Indo-Pacific Agricultural Office that's being uh, set up where uh, CAFTA, we are co-chairs of a working group along with uh, AAFC, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. And we've been insisting that that office really needs to have uh, technical capacity to work on non-tariff barriers with the new emerging markets uh, in the region. So that's been a very positive sign in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, I, I guess just broadly, we're always supportive of more trade diplomacy uh, capacity. And I go back to the idea that we shouldn't be taking steps back uh, the way we would with something like C282. Yeah, trade very important to the Canadian agriculture industry uh, as a whole. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to our next conversation because tell you what, there is no shortage of trade issues when it comes to agriculture. And you've identified that this 2026 review of uh, the, the Kuzma slash USMCA agreement is definitely something that I know we're going to be talking a lot about. So thanks for uh, putting that on our radar and uh, we'll chat with you again soon. Thanks for having me, Sean. I just have this sneaky suspicion that the relook at the Kuzma slash USMCA agreement is just going to be filled with a ton of drama. It, it, there, there is so many political overtones on this. Uh, it, it, there, there's going to be. Uh, it's going to depend who the who's the prime minister in Canada. It's going to depend on who's in the White House. Who the heck knows what's going to be going on in Mexico? It it, it could be the same drawn out long process that we had in the last renegotiation. And it, it doesn't hurt to relook at an agreement. It's just what is going to be the political thrust and what do the populations of each of those countries want to see going forward? I just, I just see a lot of drama. We'll, we'll see. Uh, hopefully, I am, I am wrong. If you have any feedback on today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, shaney at realagriculture.com. Or, of course, you can call that Real Ag Feedback line, 855-776-6147. Thanks, everybody, for getting real and getting connected with Real Ag Radio. And we will chat again tomorrow. Cheers, everybody.